0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey Podcast. Please visit Calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit Nate Holdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey everyone, great to be with you today and uh, today, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, in a message I've called Exile Work. We've been looking at the exilic Christian life in the book of 1 Peter, and to me, this has been a really challenging study, a really challenging passage of Scripture, and it's only going to get more challenging. But I think it's very helpful to us because, like the Christians that Peter ministered to Uh, We, I think, in our society and culture and in the West and in North America are being, as Christians, I believe, pushed more to the margins of or fringes of society. And so the question is, how do we respond? How do we live the exilic Christian life? If our kingdom really is not here and now, but we belong to a kingdom that is eternal, the kingdom of God, yet we're still citizens on earth today, How are we to uh, operate together? Uh, So today we're going to look at the workplace and how to conduct our exile Christianity in our place of business or our work here on earth. So let's pray together and ask God to help us. Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen us, whatever we're doing with our hands, with our time, Whether we're paid for it or not, whether it's in the home or uh, in a workplace, whether it's a career or just a job, whatever it is, Lord, we're asking for your help and your grace and that you'd use this passage to strengthen us in it. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was in my mid 20s, I was working as a young pastor here at this church. Uh, not as the lead pastor, but overseeing various ministries uh, in the church. And at about that time, our church installed a brand new senior uh, lead pastor over the congregation. And to be honest, I did not initially click with uh, this new pastor or with his leadership style. And so because of that, Christina and I just were privately praying about our future and praying about open doors that God might have for us and investigating ministry opportunities in uh, other towns. And one morning as we were in the midst of that season, and as we were praying over that situation, I came in my morning reading time to Proverbs 27. And I read Proverbs 27 verse 18, which says, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit and he who guards his master will be honored." And when I read that, it was like a burst or a bolt of lightning. It really jolted me. And instantly what I discerned was that I was supposed to treat this new pastor, my boss, as my master. I was to guard and care for him like a farmer cares for or tends a fig tree. And if I did, the spirit assured me, I would be honored just as someone who cares for a crop will eat its fruit. In short, what I was learning from the spirit that morning is that I needed to work hard for this man and that in return, good stuff would unfold for me. I didn't know what it would be, but it would come. And that's exactly what happened. Two years later, He was the one who led the charge in appointing me as the new lead pastor of this church. Now, I tell this story because the way that we work matters. And this is different than saying that our work matters. Our our work does matter, by the way. We're as Christians still living under the first commission that God gave to mankind, to humanity in Genesis chapter one, to fill the earth and subdue it. So when we make widgets, when we teach language, or when we decode the weather patterns in our workplaces, we are fulfilling part of God's important mission for our lives, so our work does matter. But it's also the way that we work. That matters. And all of us work. It might be a job. It might be a career. It might be school. It might be home. But we all work. And even when the work feels insignificant, how we accomplish that work is significant, especially to God. And the passage that we're going to look at today should fill us with inspiration regarding how we work Uh, But it's also going to challenge us as exiled Christians, believers who are being pushed to the margins of society. How we work is of paramount importance. It's an opportunity for our own transformation for one, but it's also an opportunity for us to testify of God's grace in our lives. Our work is one of the best ways for us to emulate Jesus And this passage is going to spur us in that direction. So we're gonna go all the way through verse 25, but let's read the first two verses to begin. Peter says, servants be subject to your masters, in verse 18, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows, while suffering unjustly. Okay, the first word of this passage should catch our attention. It's the word servants, servants. Now, Peter was writing during the first century to believers in the Roman Empire. Many of them were household servants. Some of our modern English translations, instead of using the word servants, like the translation I'm using uh, uses, They use the word slaves. The the original Greek word that Peter used is a tricky word because when we think of servants in our modern context, uh, we might be tempted to think of like a Downton Abbey-styled English estate with a large proliferation of serving staff. And when we think of slaves, we inevitably think of the horrors of the 19th century in American society and the slave trade that existed at that time. But the first century slaves in the Roman Empire were really not akin to either of those examples. They were like modern employees in one sense in that they were managers, they were over, overseers, they were trained in various fields, people like doctors and nurses and teachers and musicians and artists were all part of the slave class. And many of them were married. They had the right to be married. And many of them had actually sold themselves into slavery, kind of an indentured servitude for a number of years that would eventually expire. And nearly all of them had the hope or expectation of future uh, release or redemption, that they'd buy themselves out of their slavery. Additionally, They were not comprised of one race of people, but came from various cultures throughout the known world. Okay, all that said, uh, servitude at that time, or slavery at that time, was unlike modern employment in many other ways. Uh, Masters most certainly did own their servants. And many of them did not volunteer themselves in any way, but were actually captured in war by Rome or uh, were kidnapped. Their legal, social, and economic status was clearly lower than those who were free in Roman society. So it wasn't a good situation. It wasn't a holy situation. It was not ideal, but it was also not as debased and wretched As the transatlantic slave trade of our nation's history now because much of the Roman Empire was enslaved and some estimate that as many as 60% or as much as 60% of the Empire was enslaved at that time and because the gospel appeals to people who are without hope and, and in need of hope much of the early church was enslaved So not only were these enslaved Christians beginning to feel outcast for their faith, but they had to deal with the workplace drama that went along with being a believer. What would Peter tell them to do? Today, I'm going to show you five things. Starting with this, number one, Peter tells them to do good work. Do good work. He said in verse 18 that they should be subject to their masters with all respect. Now, my assumption is that if Peter told a group of first century Christian servants to be subject to their masters, then he would tell 21st century Christian employees to be subject to their employers. Proverbs 12 verse 27 tells us that diligence is a person's precious possession. Believers should be diligent employees. We should be excellent employees. God has grabbed a hold of our lives, and now we live in the fear of the Lord. God's authority and presence and holiness are meant to inform our every action. And even when no one else is around, even when no one else is watching, we know that God is involved in our lives, and we want to please him. So so we should work with diligence at all times. You see, because Jesus went above and beyond for us, believers should never be people who do the bare minimum. Because Jesus always lived to please his father, believers should never work well only when the boss is watching. Because Jesus willingly offered himself for us Believers should never be hard to approach about new responsibilities. We should be willing to volunteer and work. Because Jesus stepped off his rightful throne to serve us, believers should never feel entitled to positions and raises in their workplaces. and Because Jesus worked so hard for us, believers should never be lazy. So Peter told the church to be subject to the workplace authority in their lives. Now, before we move on in the text, there are a couple of things that I should mention or that are worth noting. One of them is that Peter told those servants to be subject to their masters, not only in verse 18, the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What I want to point out is the ideal, the ideal master, according to Peter was good and gentle. Now today, many of us are actually in positions of authority in the workplace. And without directly communicating to the first century masters who might have been part of the church, Peter did show them the way that they should be. They should be good and gentle. If it's a bad witness for a Christian worker to do bad work, then it's also a bad witness for a Christian employer to provide a bad work environment. You know, I don't like hearing about Christian employers or business owners who treat their employees poorly or who pay them ridiculously low wages. It's a challenge, I understand that. And leaders certainly cannot let their Christianity make it easy for people to take advantage of them, but it should be a good experience working for a Christian. Because they're both good and gentle. So the first thing that we see is that believers were called to do good work. So let's be diligent people in our workplace. But the second thing that we must also have in our workplace is, number two, we must believe in the power of a transformed life. We must believe in the power of a transformed life. What do I mean by that? Well, In verse 18, we already saw that Peter did think that some masters would be good and gentle, but he also thought in verse 18 that there would be plenty that were unjust. And really, in a sense, everybody in the Roman Empire knew that there were unjust masters all over the place, just like everybody knows about them today. But when Peter said this, it was actually slightly revolutionary because when he said that the treatment of slaves was unjust, he gave unprecedented status to the slaves of his era. You see, many during that time, including no less than Aristotle himself, thought of slaves as subhuman, beneath human, like tools to whom no true injustice could be done. But the apostle, corrected that thinking he said no it's very possible for a master to treat a servant unjustly because they're human beings made in the image of God but it's interesting because even though he knew that the apostolic call from Peter and also from Paul in his writings was never for revolution among the slave class what they proposed was actually more effective than a revolution they confronted unjust social structures by telling Christians to submit to God by submitting themselves to the injustice. Now this is shocking to us because one Christian ideal is the righting of wrongs, replacing injustice with righteousness. But as the early apostles stared into the face of the first century way of life, They didn't hold out much hope for changing the ways of the world. Peter and Paul weren't very optimistic about reforming the Roman Empire. What these men saw instead was a gospel revolution led by spiritual people who were so different from natural people. And when the servants Peter wrote to began living the way Peter told them, their way of living would most certainly have sparked questions. Masters and other servants who didn't know Jesus would have wondered why these Christians behaved like they did. This is why I say that we must believe in the power of a transformed life. As people under the influence of the Spirit, our reaction to the injustices done to us personally should be far different from the shouting, vengeful, and hostile way of the world. And I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't be working to combat injustice done to others. We should be. But the way we struggle against it will be different. And when injustice happens directly to us, our reaction should show the effects of Jesus in our lives. And we should not underestimate the impact and the impression this can make on other people. Ultimately, it was through the power of transformed lives that the entire Roman system eventually came down. Peter's counsel, like I said earlier, was more effective than any short-term revolution. So we have to believe in the power of a transformed life. But let's read on in our passage to see what else Peter says to us about our workplace. Verse 20. He says for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps all right so far we've learned that we must be subject in our workplaces so we want to follow orders and we want to do a good job. We want to be good workers. We've also seen that we must believe in the power of a transformed life. We have to believe that the way that we work as will, will be evidence to the people that we're working with or who are above us or around us of Christ's transforming power within us. But now the third thing that I want you to see in our text is that we must also know that God is involved god is involved in your workplace peter shows us god's involvement in three ways first he tells us that when unjust suffering occurs we should endure those sorrows while being verse 19 mindful of god what does that mean well to be mindful of god in your workplace especially a workplace where you're treated unfairly is to be conscious of God's presence and remaining loyal to him. I think Peter knew that enduring a rough workplace is impossible unless we know God is with us in the pain. But God's presence helps us endure. You see, in a lot of workplaces, um, there's tons of temptation. And it can be difficult for a believer to know how to act. I'm praying for so many of you who are in positions in our society where you're looking to God for wisdom as to how to navigate the times that we're in. But we have to remember that God is with us. We must be mindful of God. Peter tells us mindful of God. When the jokes are inappropriate, mindful of God. When the after work gatherings get out of control, Uh, Mindful of God when a coworker pulls up sinful images on their phone to show everybody else. Mindful of God when we're asked to rejoice in something that we can't rejoice in as believers. Uh, I remember one coworker in my past, not in church work, who celebrated to me an extramarital affair that he was getting away with at the moment. It was awkward. As a believer, I, of course, could not celebrate with him. We have to be mindful of God. But it's not just that God is involved because we're mindful of him. Peter tells us also in verse 20 that God is mindful of us. He said, verse 20, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you're suffering and you endure in your workplace, God sees it. It's a gracious thing in his sight. Now there will be a lot of times where we suffer for our own sin. And and Peter's not talking about that, but it bears repeating. You know, many believers, unfortunately, will act foolishly or obnoxiously or disrespectfully or lazily and wonder why they get hostility in return. But Peter, he thinks it's admirable when someone does good and suffers for it with endurance. God sees that, according to Peter. Peter, It's a gracious thing to God. In Genesis, we see an example of this in that Joseph was sold into slavery by his older brothers. He was eventually purchased by a man named Potiphar and rather than sulk, Joseph served in Potiphar's household and he served very well. After some false accusations, he was thrown into an Egyptian prison, but rather than sulk, he served the other prisoners. And one day, this led to Joseph's exaltation as Pharaoh's right-hand man. What was Joseph doing? He was enduring the suffering well, and God saw it. Daniel is another Bible character who did good and sometimes received suffering in return. He was constantly threatened. He was challenged. He was doubted. And one time he was even thrown into a lion's den by his boss, who basically told him, I wish I could do something, but it's policy. When God protected Daniel in all these instances, Daniel never lit up his adversaries or bosses, but continued to endure with good works. And we see his example and then think of how easily we light someone up for poor customer service or something like that. Peter's thought is that God sees all this. Later, Peter will say in chapter 4, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, God's spirit rests on you in a special way when you endure hostility for him. But not only are we mindful of God, well, and Not only is God mindful of us while we suffer, but Peter also said in verse 21 that God is involved with our suffering because he's actually called us to it. He said in verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Could this really be true? Is it really possible that believers are called to suffer? Yes, According to Peter, yes. This is an astounding statement. Now, the world, of course, is filled with suffering, and this is a result of sin's presence in our species. But Peter is not telling us that suffering is inevitable because we are the world's citizens. He's instead saying that suffering is our calling because we are citizens of God's kingdom, Now, this teaching is a far cry from the spirit of a lot of believers who claim the peace of Christ while expecting a tribulation-free experience here on earth. Many believers would actually rather reject Peter's teaching right here in favor of the advice that Peter gave to Jesus while he was still on the earth, telling Jesus to avoid the suffering of the cross. But to that spirit, we must say what Jesus said to Peter at that time. Get behind me, Satan. Because the desire to avoid all suffering is satanic in origin. So while we suffer, especially in our workplaces, we're to remember God is involved. He's present. We're to be mindful of him. He is mindful of us. And he has called us to a bit of suffering here on earth. And to be frank about all of this part of Christian maturity is to like Jesus choose suffering at times. The great commission tells us that we're to go make disciples of all nations. It's no joke and it's hard to accomplish. It's hard to do. And sometimes we have to choose hard paths to get the mission accomplished. So perhaps as we suffer unjustly in our workplaces from time to time, Perhaps it's training, like training wheels for us, for the mission that Jesus has called us to. Maybe he's strengthening, strengthening us through suffering so that we will more easily choose suffering when needed for his kingdom. But we've got to know that God is with us. Now, at the end of verse 21 Peter said that Jesus is our example in all this so that we might follow in his steps. And when Peter said that, he used a word that the Greeks used to describe a student artist copying a masterpiece, like like using trace paper to copy the original, so Christians are meant to follow Jesus's life, follow his steps. But what example does Peter have in mind, especially when it comes to our workplaces or perhaps even suffering in our workplaces? Well, to answer, he quotes portions of Isaiah 53, a prophecy that was explicitly and obviously about Jesus. But it's actually interesting. Peter's the only New Testament author who directly applies Isaiah 53 to the life of Jesus. So let's read it together. Verse 22 to 24. He said, What is it about Jesus that we're supposed to follow? How is he our example, especially in workplace suffering? Well, the first thing that Peter highlights is that Jesus responded without retaliation of any kind. He did not sin in response to the religious or Roman authorities. And he did not lash out with deceitful or reviling words. Peter seems to have wanted to highlight the words or lack of words from Jesus. I can only imagine that as a guy who often said whatever he was thinking, Peter was especially impressed that Jesus didn't say anything in the garden, during his trials, or on the cross that was sinful. He didn't return insults, he didn't threaten, he didn't warn. Instead, he pleaded with God for the forgiveness of his oppressors, saying things like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In the Old Testament, there came a time when King David was betrayed by his own son. In David's younger years, before he was king, he had fled to the wilderness because King Saul wanted to kill him. Years later, after he became king, his own son betrayed him. Again, he was driven to the wilderness. And on his way there, a man named Shimei came out and cursed David. He suggested that David deserved all this because of how he treated Saul in the past when all he'd done was treat Saul really well. It was the very definition of a false accusation. Uh, One of David's nephews, who was also a warrior in David's company, actually asked David for permission to go eliminate Shimei. But David responded this way. He said, leave him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Just an amazing response. David let it happen. Like Christ, David would not revile or threaten in return. And Jesus is still our example today. We should, as believers, not be those who go off on others when treated unfairly because Jesus did not respond in that way. But Peter tells us that Jesus also responded with sacrifice for others. He said in verse 24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's another way of saying the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You, Peter says, have been healed. So not only did Jesus respond to hostility without any hostility in return. He responded with a sacrifice of himself for our sins. Peter says bluntly that Jesus bore our sins when he died on the cross. He says it took Jesus's wounds to heal us of our wounds, the ones caused by sin. And like Christ, sometimes we're called to suffer as a sacrifice to bring life to others, even in our workplace. Now, in reading all of this, we might feel that it's rather impossible to do. Uh, When I was young, Michael Jordan was the dominant force in basketball, and it was a thrill to watch him play the game. And he was marketed like crazy. And I remember one commercial. It was Gatorade's Be Like Mike campaign. And it flashed back and forth between Michael Jordan highlights playing basketball and regular people trying to imitate him or even playing basketball with him. And the idea was that since Michael Jordan drank Gatorade, we should also drink Gatorade and be like Mike. And I don't think anyone mistook the commercial as saying that we could actually be like Michael Jordan on the basketball court. Uh, all we had to really do was just drink some citrus cooler flavored Gatorade and we could play basketball like Michael Jordan. No, we realize it's impossible. I'll never be that. But here's the deal. You and I we can actually be like Jesus. His spirit, if you're a Christian, resides within you. He wants to help you live the way that he did. In fact, when you do live the way that he lives, it's not you, it's him living through you. He wants to strengthen you to refrain from from retaliation and instead sacrifice for others in your workplace. And there's another help to all of this, by the way. Peter mentioned that Jesus, verse 23, used this help. He continued entrusting himself, he said, to him who judges justly. This means that Jesus repeatedly, amid all the accusations and slander and mistreatment, prayerfully committed his life to his father. And he knew that the father would handle it. He knew the father would justly judge all the sins committed against him. Now, this is a good strategy to follow because our best self-defense is never as good as God's defense. So when you're mistreated entrust yourself to God, so you might be thinking, well, what happens if I do all of this? I do good work respectfully, I don't respond with hostility, but instead sacrifice for an unjust master. What what will happen if I respond like Jesus? Won't they take advantage of me? Won't I be abused? Well, Peter really isn't concerned with answering those questions. And of course, the people that he was writing to, servants in the first century, they didn't have the freedoms that we have in our society. You know, if you came to me and you said, Well, my boss is treating me all these different ways and I'm trying my best, I'm being submissive, all of that. I'd say, well, you know, here's the advice that Peter gives to us apostolically, but you could also look for a new job as well. You're not tied to it, you're a free person. But in the meantime, we have to entrust ourselves to God like these people did. Now let's read our last verse today to see our fifth thing. Verse 25, he said, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The fifth thing that I want you to see is that we must aim for the lost to be found. We must aim for the lost to be found. You know, we've learned that our work as Christian exiles, it should be good work. We've seen that we must believe in the power of a transformed life and that god is involved with us in the workplace he goes to work with you we've also been exhorted to follow christ's example but in this last little verse we're encouraged in our workplaces to aim for the lost to be found why why do i say this from this last verse well peter draws our attention to how we were lost ourselves we were straying sheep but that now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In other words, we used to be lost, but Jesus, our shepherd, he came and found us. The good shepherd left the 99 and found the one. But today, when we go to work, we're more than likely surrounded by other lost sheep. The shepherd is looking for them and he might use us to search them out. So it stands to reason that we should work in a way that aims for the lost to be found. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are exiles. We belong to another kingdom. Let's work as if King Jesus were directing our lives and our work lives today. Lord, I pray for every person that's part of this church or has listened to this message. And I ask, Lord, and pray that you would give every one of us the wisdom, discernment, and the endurance that we need to navigate the complexities of the modern workplace that you've put us in. We commit it, Lord, into your hands. Thank you for being our great example. Amen.